Hello. Welcome to Learn It From a Layman. I'm Carl Christensen. I'm joined tonight by Matt, Cameron, and Johnny's back, and he's making fun of me, uh, which isn't helpful to the podcast, Johnny. My job right now is to make fun of Tim, who's not even here, so you can't uh, turn the tables on me. Um, welcome back, Johnny. It's been a couple of episodes since you've been here, so yeah. Thank you very much. I think our the number of listeners goes down every time I'm on, so. <laughs> but that's okay. I'm having fun. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but we... Uh, we appreciate your presence on the podcast, usually. <laughs> no, um, no, we're happy to have everyone back. And tonight we're going to be talking about World War II. Now, if you followed our podcast for any length of time or gone back and listened to some of our uh, our library, you've seen that we've done a history. Well, it was part of a mini series that we were going to continue, and we probably still will in the future. This is kind of a... Um, kind of an excerpt podcast. So instead of doing it by decades, we decided to do a World War II focused podcast. So this is the basics of World War II. Now we understand that uh, the layman out there has some basic information about World War II. Um, it turns out that that is pretty much in any history class you've ever taken, at least in the United States. I'm guessing globally, uh, World War II is taught um, some of the basic facts there. And then pretty much any novel that you've ever read is probably at least tangentially about World War II. I'm currently reading two books, and they are both about World War II. Um, so it is 100 percent, uh, yeah, rate for backing exactly. up your assertion there. <laughs> so based on those two data points, yes, all books are about World War II. So I do all my statistics. Go back and listen to our statistics podcast. Uh, anecdote. The Iliad yes. might say otherwise. <laughs> um, yeah. So. Uh, there, there's a lot of information out there. There's a lot of good information out there. But uh, what happens a lot is when there's so much information, it's hard to get the kind of the bare bones and a little bit uh, of the structure of what actually happened during World War II um, outside of just maybe your history class, which is probably for a lot of, a lot of us well in the past and or uh, maybe we fell asleep. So we'd like a little bit of a uh, refresher course. And that's uh, very good at history. And I, I believe each of us, Cameron and, and I and, and Johnny, uh, have all had uh, some good exposure to uh, World War II history. And so we're going to go through and talk a little bit about um, the events and, and what transpired during that uh, during that World War, which was, uh, as all wars are, a tragedy, but uh, one that shaped uh, the, the world that we live in. So, Matt, um, it, before you tell us a little bit about the events and, and the dates or whatever else, uh, tell us a little bit about what the 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 lie of the, uh, the the land was, I guess, in in Germany, and why we were, uh, what things looked like right before the war. Well, they looked bad. Uh, usually, wars do not start when things are going well. Quite. And keep in mind, our our faithful listeners out there will remember that World War Two was a continuation of a number of activities that started back in the 30s. Japan and China, or the lands that are now China, had been going for some time with different military conflicts of smaller or larger scale. Uh, in Germany especially, things were, were not so great in the 1920s and 30s. World War I had left Germany pretty badly crippled. And so 
Germans were looking for anything that could get them some level of uh, prosperity, national pride, basically take them from being the uh, you know the the defeated group to something a little bit more. And so Hitler comes along and he is very nationalist. He's talking about how awesome Germany is. And he he's proposing all these radical reforms and all these uh, different ideas, all to, to kind of save the day for Germany, to bring it back from the depths of defeat, to make Germany uh, in, into a, a world power and, and restore its uh, prestige and so forth. Uh, okay, so, you know, being proud of your country is great. The danger is when you start doing that at the detriment or, or to the blame of another group. And, and that was kind of what Hitler did. He basically said, all of Germany's problems are these other people's fault. Uh, the communists, different political parties that I don't like, and most famously, the Jews. Uh, and so if you can start pointing people at another group and tell them that this is why you have all the problems you have, not only will they get behind you, this is this is a terrible part of human nature, by the way. Please do not fall for this, dear listener. Uh, but not only will they get behind you, uh, but they will start to hate other people because that's easy to do. It's a. Uh, it's it's nice when I can blame someone else for my woes. Um, and, and so you had the surge in nationalist feeling, this uh, surge in, in attempt to, to bring back Germany's glories and prestige and, and bring it out of the depths of poverty and despair into which it had been cast following World War One, And it really was pretty bad following World War One. Um. So, so that's kind of the lay of the land. In 1938, uh, Hitler and with the agreement of some people, certainly not all people, uh, but uh, with his, his cronies in Austria, executes what is known as the Anschluss, which I probably pronounced wrong, uh, but basically annexes chunks of Austria and, and other bits of Europe. And the world views this with concern, but come on, we just got out of World War One not too long ago. We don't really want to push anything. Uh, Spain is is just coming through its horrifically bloody civil war. Yeah, we're we're just gonna let this yeah, go. I, I guess. have a question. Yeah, about along those lines. Um, so you, you like you said, like the Hitler's rise to power was quick, uh, but it was not. It wasn't overnight. I mean, there was a bit of a uh, time period in which people were seeing this situation, uh, you know, the Nazi party, which was the uh, National Socialist Party, um, which was very, uh, you know, radical, uh, gained power in uh, in Germany and and with Hitler at the head of that movement. And uh, and so then the Olympics happened um, and people had the exposure to some of the issues that I mean, but before that, the world was a, a bit aware of the issues. But how did Europe, who had just finished war, like you said, and there were other issues going on, but 
I guess how were people so unprepared uh, other and by people, I mean, other governments so unprepared for this this onslaught that was about to take place, given, you know, the I guess the, the recent history of, of issues oh. and and just, you know, what they already seen of Hitler. Yeah, well, well, we'll get into maybe some of the military preparations or lack thereof um, and, and how and why Hitler was able to do things. And you're right, Hitler's rise to power was not particularly smooth. His book, for which he is most famous, uh, Mein Kampf, uh, which, which is my struggle or my war, um, was actually written in prison, <laughs> I think, because, uh, you know, the German authorities that in power at the time did not like this young upstart who was being radical and fomenting discord and prancing about in silly looking shorts um so yeah when i, th- I think hitler became chancellor in was it 1933 1935 uh 1933 uh he became chancellor of germany and he he set about getting his team his, his his country uh ready for his plans his his plans of a thousand year reich um basically a, a germany that would would dominate europe for the next millennium and you know in complete defiance of all of the allied resolutions that were passed at the end of world war one he started to rearm secretly uh and then a little bit more openly. And he had arrangements with Russia, um, which is a little weird because, you know, the the fascists in Germany and, and the communists in Russia were about as ideologically opposed as you can possibly get. Nonetheless, they had arrangements whereby German military personnel would go over to Russia where they would fly German airplanes and practice combat maneuvers and and, well practice for combat uh, over in Russia. And it was fine because no one else could see it and the Russians were complicit and that was great. Um, We also had the Spanish Civil War where the Luftwaffe in particular got to, uh, they got a jump start on- Also for the Luftwaffe, for the layman, that's the German Air Force. That is the German Air Force, translates to air weapon. Luft meaning air, Waffe meaning waffle. (laughs) <laughs> or possibly weapon. Um, ah, the air waffles. Yes, but and and keep in mind, World War the the period in the early 1900s of of World War One and World War Two were periods of revolutionary change to the way that warfare is fought and waged, and you had things that the world had never seen before that started to make huge tactical and strategic differences, particularly air power which was not a thing before World War I. And so Germany gets a head start with air power, and they go over and fight in the Spanish Civil War, and and they just, they kind of run wild. They do really well, weirdly, fighting against Russians on the Spanish nationalist side. But they're, uh, they're doing... They, they really kind of get a head start in some of these revolutionary new combat things. And they start to learn about joint campaigns, integrating air and land power, uh, close air support, all of these 
ideas that modern militaries take for granted because most modern militaries learned them the hard way during World War II. The Germans learned them a little bit in advance. And so they went into that with some advantage there. That's just part of it. Um, but, you know, with that, there, there, there was much more going on. You, you had Hitler starting to mobilize and rearm and, and build up a military uh, in the late 1930s. He and, uh, well, not he, but, you know, Germany, his representative and, and the Soviet representative sign a mutual non-aggression pact called the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact, where basically, I don't know, I, I wish I could say I don't know why you would sign this, but recent history has shown that you will sign anything, I guess. Um, basically, both countries promised not to attack each other for a decade. Ten years, we're, we're just not going to shoot. After that, all bets are off. But for the next ten years, Soviet Union, we absolutely pinky swear that Nazi Germany shall verily not attack you. This is like 1938. Um, and we will see how well that went when we get to 1940. But that's kind of the lay of the land. You have Hitler mobilizing to concern without anyone really moving. You have a not novice military now. They've, they've been blooded and, and earned veteran status in the Spanish Civil War. And you still have m much of Europe recovering from the, the effects of World War I. And so that's kind of where you are. And, and you know, maybe I, I wasn't alive back then, obviously, fortunately. Um, I wonder if maybe you had some complacency on the part of the Allies as opposed to how driven the Germans were to restore their country's prestige because they'd just been absolutely thwomped. Uh, following World War I, the reparations that were exacted of Germany were really, really hard for them to bear. Uh, not saying whether that was right or wrong, it's just it made life difficult for your average German. So, anyway, does, does that give you kind of the prelude to World yeah. War I? One I'm of sorry, the things, two. though, that you already brought up and I wanted to uh ask about also as we get into the some of the dates and and more of the you know further past the anschluss uh was you mentioned the and everyone knows the layman knows that hitler uh, and the nazis hated jews uh specifically why you, you mentioned they hate the communists and they hate the jews everyone knows that they you know what all the atrocities that were committed on the jewish people um, any particular reason that you know of? Uh, there, there's the internet legend that it was because he was kicked out of art school. I, I don't put too much stock into that. Um, I, I, I confess I have not made a study of the writings of Adolf Hitler, so I don't really know that much about the origins of his ideology, and I'm okay with that. Um, okay. But I, I don't have a great answer on why specifically he chose that group to target. Um, but okay. other than perhaps, again, keep in mind the, the situation in um, much of Germany is, is pretty destitute. And, and Jews had a, you know, a stereotype of, well, kind of being wealthy, uh, being the guys behind the financial institutions. They had the money. So if they have the money and you don't have the money, 
I wonder if that's maybe why he made them a target. I don't know. I, yeah, I guess I'm I, speculating. Just based on my my sorry, Tim, were you going to say something? Tim has joined us. Also. Oh, yeah. Sorry. If I could insert, I I think that, and uh, again, speaking as a layman here, but I, I think that your uh, scholars who study the history of the Jewish people would would suggest that the Holocaust, um, they would frame it not as an individual event, but rather a continuation of centuries of. Um, of persecution and opportunistic um you know attacks against the jews hitler was from the first uh, civic leader to um turn on the jews as a convenient scapegoat and um again i I don't like like matt says i also don't know uh, what his origins were but um you know antagonism towards the jews and the when, when things go south, we look around and, and who's to blame, who, you know, who caused this. Um, it, the Holocaust was not the first time that uh, the Jews were the victims in violence of, of that kind of mindset. Yeah, uh, that's a good point. Hitler didn't invent anti-Jewish sentiment. He just he, he exploited it. He played on it. And you're right. It, it is something that is is not new unfortunately so okay yeah, uh, i think we should speak. also uh, ahead, mention that it wasn't only the jews that it was the undesirable people that he attacked it was okay. also people that were mentally disabled vagrants blacks um there was quite a few people that kind of yeah. went under that basically any minority <laughs> um uh yeah. yeah the gypsies were uh severely victimized as well um but anyway this is um i mean we could spend an entire podcast on the evils of hitler we could spend i mean he he, the the man was evil incarnate um but a lot of it came back to that idea that if i can point my people towards an enemy someone that they can blame someone that they can hate, or in his his case, multiple someones that they can blame and hate, then I can get these dudes to follow me. Uh, And so that's what he did. Okay. All right. Well, um, I'm sure we'll talk more a little bit later about, uh, obviously, some of the just atrocities, the concentration camps. But uh, let's move on to some of the the beginning of the war, some of the the fights. You said talk about the Anschluss. But then there's uh, there's more military conflict shortly thereafter. Uh, yeah, so World War Two kind of I guess the the recognized event comes on September first, nineteen thirty nine, when Germany invades Poland and and they charge in there. Parts of Poland hold out for. Uh, you know, towards the end of the month, but Poland is is pretty badly outmatched here, and defenses are mounted. Uh, Warsaw is quickly encircled, and to add to Poland's troubles, uh, about mid-month, the Soviets invade too, because uh, again they had the the non-aggression pact with Germany, and and they kind of planned a lot of this. Uh, who was going to be under whose sphere of influence? They were going to carve this up. 
into a Soviet sphere and a German sphere, and, and that was going to be the thing. And so Poland gets taken down uh, by the Germans, and, and meanwhile, most of Europe reacts by immediately declaring themselves neutral, with the exceptions of England or of Great Britain and France, who deliver some ultimatums to Germany that go unanswered, and then uh, you know, one to two days later, they declare themselves in a state of war with Germany. Uh, if you've seen The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe or read that book, you know that the children were moved out to the countryside to protect them. Well, that movement actually started the same day that Hitler in- invaded Poland, uh, where about a million citizens were evacuated from British yeah, cities. Another, Sorry, go ahead. There's another book that I, I recently read to my kids uh, was The War That Saved My Life, and that also documents the uh, kind of the beginning of the war in, in Britain and how, yeah, the children were shipped off. And uh, so, yeah. Um, so Poland, Poland is pretty quickly conquered. Uh, shortly after that, you have Germany begins to move against uh, these other neighboring countries as well. Um, Poland happened in September. Immediately after that, you have what came to be known as the phony war where Britain and France started putting together forces in uh, on the continent in France. They, and France even launched a limited offensive into Germany. It didn't get very far. But they, they just started putting fo- forces on the ground, getting ready for wider scale operations. This lasts until May of 1940. It's called the Phony War. In the interim, uh, in April and May of 1940, Germany invades Denmark and Norway, and, and they both surrender. Um, and meanwhile, the Soviet Union is making overtures toward Latvia, Estonia, and Finland, saying things like, wouldn't it be great if we had large Soviet military bases inside your countries, you know, in case something bad were to happen? I mean, it, you can, like the mafia? The, yeah, you can literally imagine it as a cartoon mafia villain, because that's... Like, I mean, all all the subtlety of, of a sledgehammer here. Um, and is, is Stalin in charge at the beginning? Stalin is in charge. And at one point he tells the Finns that, look, if you guys don't agree to this quick, there might be an accident that happens. Um, and, and sure enough, not too much after that, in early 19, uh, or I'm sorry, in, in November of 1939, uh, an accident happens where some Russian soldiers are bombarded by artillery from Finland. The artillery shells happen to be Russian, coming from Russian guns manned by other Russians. Hmm. Uh, but it's the false flag operation that kicks off what is known as the Winter War, where the the Russians, the, the Soviets, go into Finland and attempt to annex some chunks of strategically valuable land. This ends up going horrifically badly for the Russians at a tactical level, where you have these peasant conscripts. uh, I mean, these are just half-starved kids who have been given a rifle that might not work, that are going up against a very determined enemy in, in the Finns, 
and you, uh, so some of our layman viewers may be, be familiar with Chris Kyle, American sniper uh, who served with distinction in Iraq. Um, yeah, but the the highest killing sniper of all time was a Finnish guy named Simo Heia. I probably pronounced that wrong. Uh, but in 100 days against the Russians, he had a confirmed, uh, he had over 500 confirmed kills. He was oh, taking out five Russians a day by himself. Uh, he, he stalked and annihilated entire platoons. Um, and, and this was, I mean, this wasn't, I mean, th that was the most extreme example, but this was not an isolated tactical incident. Uh, the Winter War was horrifically bloody for the Soviets. Um, that said, they could afford it. They had hordes of conscript peasants, and the Finns did not. And so the, the Winter War ended with a, a peace accord in in Russia's favor, where Finland did end up ceding some land to them. This put Finland in a really bad position because you have Germany, who is is not well regarded by the rest of the world right now because they've just invaded Poland. And you have the Soviet Union knocking at your doorstep, these two large powers now. And the allies aren't particularly close to you. And, and Britain and France don't have any alliance agreements with you. You really have the Germans to your south, and you have the Soviets to your uh, east. And so what do you do? And it kind of becomes an enemy of my enemy is less of my enemy kind of thing. And so Finland is put in a position where they're not necessarily on Germany's side, but they're willing to accept German assistance. And, and this kind of goes on throughout World War II for poor Finland. Um, Meanwhile, continuing on uh, back in, in, in the south, in, in Western Europe, in May of 1940, on, on the 10th, Germany launches the, their offensive uh, into France. And they, the, France had, had built up these defenses called the Maginot Line, expecting a German invasion through uh, Belgium, I believe, through, through a, a certain attack corridor, because of course, that's how you would do it. Well, Germany didn't do that. They went through the Ardennes Forest, which is not a fun forest to move armored groups and soldiers through, but they did it anyway. And they bypassed the Maginot Line, and, and this is where kind of the, the concept of Blitzkrieg was born. And, and they sweep into France. And I thought Blitzkrieg was born with the Pol Polish attack. Well, I mean, kind of, sort of. I mean, it, it's uh, th there was no... My understanding is there was never a point where the Germans said, hey, this time we're doing Blitzkrieg. Um, <laughs> right. This is a it's it's a term that's been analysis. retroactively applied right. to all of these initial campaigns. Right. So and, and Blitzkrieg from the German Blitz, Lightning, Krieg War. Blitzen is Lightning, whatever. Uh, anyway, Lightning War, Fast War. And and here I've kind of mentioned the Germans with their experience with combined arms, where they have air and land forces working in concert with each other. Really, and, and in particular, they have infantry and armor working together, 
with uh, the German tanks, the Panzers, uh, working very closely and integrated with the infantry units. And suddenly these become very, very hard to stand up against. You can't really deploy your anti-armor teams to take out the tanks because you have German infantry firing away at them. And you can't counterattack with a large infantry formation because the German armor is pinning them down. Uh, and if you don't have a mixed and integrated armor and infantry force yourself, uh, preferably with some air cover, this becomes very hard to stand against. And, and it was hard to stand against. And so France falls. And, and unfortunately, now the Brits are in a position where they've already moved a million plus men onto the continent and they're stuck. And is this where we get to Dunkirk? We do get to Dunkirk at the end of May. You have all of these British troops on the beaches, uh, completely surrounded by by German forces and subjected to German air attack. And the British basically go out to their population and say, if you have a boat, we need you. And they, they pull off a modern miracle and they manage to evacuate a massive army from the beaches at Dunkirk back to Britain to fight another day. And they saved the British army. Uh, and, and without that miracle, British military power would have been utterly crippled. And, and that's kind of what's going on up in, in mainland Europe. Shortly after that, Italy decides that it's going to be on Germany's side. So it enters the war on, on June 11th. Uh, their, and, their leader and was Mussolini. Right? Mussolini, yep. Yeah. Uh, and and that happens right before France formally surrenders on uh, June 22nd. And the surrender arrangement is that Germany is going to occupy most of France, and then southern France will have its own independent provisional government that will be friendly to Germany, but not under direct German control. And that is, and it's based in Vichy. And so you have the Vichy French government that kind of runs southern france for a bit not under the direct control of germany but definitely under the the control of germany so are these um vichy, this vichy government yeah. was it also um i mean was it so mussolini it, was a social social what was he anyway it was uh, were these all kind of nationalist type um I'm not really sure what the Vichy movement was, but it was essentially a puppet government set up by okay. the, the Germans to ad administer the affairs of southern France while they administered the affairs of northern France. Okay. Uh, later, later on, um, Italy, Germany, and uh, Japan in the fall of 1940 sign a, a pact, the tripartite, I probably said that wrong, pact where they basically all say, look, we're all on the same side. We're not going to fight each other. Yay. Jumping back into the summer, um, Britain has managed to survive to fight another day, but Germany doesn't want that day to come. You know, they, they want that day to happen sooner rather than later. They want to launch an invasion of Britain, and they have plans for Operation Sea Lion, where they're going to charge across the English Channel, and deploy the Wehrmacht, the German army, and take over Britain. And they, they recognize, because they're, they're seeing the experience as that 
you know, the the significant way that air power can influence a battle. They're seeing that first they've got to eliminate the Royal Air Force, and also they need to kind of soften up Britain, uh, and so they start bombing it. They bomb London. They they launch all of these raids, and and going up against the these bombing raids and and these attacks is the the RAF, the Royal Air Force, with a, a comparatively limited number of of fighters and pilots. But from July to October, you have the Battle of Britain, and and this is in in, in the history of aerial conflict. This fight is legendary in the way that Britain managed to hold off the Luftwaffe and, and their superior numbers. And there's a number of, of reasons why uh, the British were able to be so successful. Um, the British had a, an integrated command and control chain where they had radar stations and ground control uh, intercept officers that with, with a very, a, a remarkably polished communication chain that it would be minutes from when a contact was picked up on radar to when a fighter was scrambled under the direction of a single controller on a certain vector saying, go here, wait to intercept, you're going to see something. Um, and and that was it. And it was a, a very slickly oiled machine. It didn't help the Germans that they were fighting over England at kind of the maximum range of their aircraft. Uh, when a German fighter got over England, they had enough fuel for about six minutes of combat, um, which is that's not a whole. Yeah, that, that's not. You, you got to be quick because if you aren't, the next wave of RAF fighters is going to tear you apart. Uh, so, you know, Britain definitely had a home field advantage, uh, a fuel advantage, and their command and control system was a, a very well oiled machine. So were there no aircraft carriers in the uh, uh, up there by you know the uh, the on the coast of Britain? Uh, German ones. German ones. Yeah, the Germans never fielded an aircraft carrier. Um, they had plans for one. But the other thing is that the, the British, again, carrier air naval air power was was only starting to be understood the the very first glimmers of of understanding of what naval air power could mean and the british enjoyed naval supremacy the british home fleet was was pretty dominant and a german aircraft carrier to get close enough to launch effective sorties would have been within range of Ger- of british land based bombers of the british home fleet it would have had a bad time um and and so I don't know that that would have been much of an option. There were British aircraft carriers, and they would sail down to the Mediterranean and other places and uh, wreak havoc with their carrier-based fighters, and they provided some convoy escort as so well. Germ- yeah. Sorry, Sorry I was because I know that German had, Germany had U-boats, yep. uh, submarines, but so, uh, so you're saying they didn't have much um, in the way of uh, battleships or uh, or uh, the no aircraft carriers? No, Um no, they they definitely had battleships and let, let's back up to uh, to 1939 and and I apologize World War II is large so I'm going to miss important <laughs> things um, but shortly after Germany invades Poland and Britain declares war Germany starts uh, they they kick off what becomes known as the Battle of the Atlantic 
And the first thing that they torpedo is a British passenger liner uh, headed off to Canada. And, and 200 plus people are killed. And the, the commander of the German U-boat force, Carl Donitz, says, okay, we're not going to do that anymore. We're not going to attack passenger ships. We are only going to attack British merchant ships and warships, period. Well, that lasts for about a month. And then things are uh, relaxed and it becomes we're going to attack French things, too. And it becomes we're going to attack anything. And the Battle of the Atlantic rages through much of World War II in one form or another. Germany fields just hordes of submarines, hundreds of them. Um, and and they their whole purpose is to go out there and cut off supply lines from North America in particular uh, and, and the other outlying British uh, possessions. You know, you have supplies coming from India, you have them coming from Africa, you have them coming from all over the place. And in the way, you have U-boat boat forces in the northern Atlantic, southern Atlantic, uh, you know, off the coast of the Americas, off the coast of Africa, all of them hunting for merchant convoys. At the same time, Germany actually does have some very formidable battleships. Uh, in particular, the Bismarck and the Tirpitz are uh, in, incredible weapons. And the idea that a, uh, a German battleship could get out, into the, could break free into the Atlantic and devastate some of these convoys is at first borne out when there, there's a ship, the, the Graf Spee, which goes off and does some commerce raiding and, and takes down a couple merchant vessels in the southern Atlantic and is eventually cornered in, I think, Uruguay by a force of three British cruisers and, and ends up being scuttled. But the fact that this large German gunship was floating around blasting away at these merchant vessels who could do nothing against it is terrifying. And so you have the implementation of a convoy system where large groups of, of merchant vessels traveling and carrying war supplies will be escorted by uh, a small force of destroyers or uh, a carrier with covering aircraft um, and, and run back and forth across the Atlantic uh, to, to and from the, uh, Britain and uh, Russia. And this is a whole big thing throughout the war, the, the submarines picking off parts of these convoys and, and the escorting ships trying to knock them down. All the while, while the British are trying to prevent a, a German surface battleship like the Bismarck or the Tirpitz from breaking out. And because if, if, the, if a destroyer escorting a convoy comes up against a, a German capital battleship, it's not going to go well for the destroyer, and that convoy will just be annihilated. And and so the British can devote considerable effort to finding these large German ships and trying to neutralize them. And this goes on for, for some time through uh, 1943. Um, but anyway, that, that's kind of the Battle of the Atlantic, and I, I jumped a little bit ahead in the timeline. Uh, but does that answer that question? The German naval focus was really on submarines and then on a couple large capital ships that really had their effect as a fleet in being 
the fact that they existed tied down a number of British and allied naval forces that were not free to go off and do other things like, you know, attack German ports in the Mediterranean or Africa, things like that. Okay. Yeah, that does make sense. I guess I had just thought that, and uh, I know that uh, our, well, not all all of our, but most of the ho- uh, co-hosts on this podcast here, Mutual Grandfather was on an aircraft carrier, and I know that the United States had a number of aircraft, aircraft carriers. So um, I figured that Germany would have had to have uh, invested in those as well. They, newer technology, but not unknown, obviously. It surprises me that they didn't have any. Yeah, well, it's it was a bit of a different tactical situation. Germany was really trying to project power around Europe, where the United States was trying to project power across oceans. Um, but yeah, it, it is a bit different. We'll get to U.S. aircraft carriers when they talk about the Pacific, if we have time to address. If the we get there. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's move quickly through the war here then. Yeah, so 1940. uh, The Battle of Britain ends. uh, Oh, that's, by the way, that's the Churchill quote. Never was so much owed by so many. uh, Yeah, something never in the course of human events has so much been owed by so many to so few. Speaking of the RAF and, and everything that they did. Uh, it ends in defeat for the Luftwaffe and the cancellation or, uh, or, or postponement of Operation Sea Lion. And this is a pretty significant strategic thing. The, this this has massive repercussions throughout the war because of Germany's other plans. They really wanted Sea Lion to happen and to be over and done with so that they could focus on other things, which we will get to in a bit. Uh, Towards the end of 1941, the uh, the Italian I'm sorry of 1940, the Italians have kind of entered the war and, and invaded British-held Egypt from Italian-held Libya, and so there's a North African campaign started, and the Italians kind of stall, and so the Germans send down one of their best generals, uh, Field Marshal Erwin Rommel, the Desert Fox, with his Africa Corps down to North Africa to kind of straighten things out. And unfortunately for the Allies, Rommel is very, very good. And things go very badly for the Allies in North Africa for for quite some time. Finally in December, well, well, I I guess we'll we'll get to that later, but, but you have this North Africa theater kicking off in December of 1941. Uh, where I'm sorry, 1940, uh, where the, the British achieve a significant victory against the Italians. The Germans look at that and go, "Okay, time to step in," and and so they send Rommel down there shortly after. Um, going back to Operation Sea Lion, this is aborted. Germany is not going to invade the UK, but they're also not going to derail all of their plans. And so, with the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact only like three years old, Germany invades Russia in June of 1941. Britain is still alive to the West, and they're they're not happy. Uh, and now Germany is charging eastward into Russia. And the initial German advances into Russia go spectacularly well. Um, it is so bad 
how utterly unprepared the Russians are for this. And, you know, they sweep in. Uh, Russian outposts are reporting. German hordes are, are coming across and they're getting responses from headquarters. What do you mean, Germans? And why aren't your messages coded? Um, the the ruling elite of the Communist Party charge into Stalin's office saying, you know, chairman, what should we do? They find him hiding under his desk because he was pretty sure that they were there to arrest him. Uh, fortunately for him, he's he's worked up his cult of personality so far that it has not crossed their mind to arrest this idiot. And, uh, you, you know, he pivots beautifully on the moment and uh, continues dictating um, and and continues losing for some time. And the the germans just sweep into russia penetrating to the to the outskirts of moscow before they are finally repulsed for a bit um and 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 that's much of uh of the end of 1941 as as far as world war ii goes now in in the meantime in the pacific theater and over in asia japan and china are continuing to to fight and japan is continuing to have pretty significant success against the Chinese. But they have a problem in that the U.S. Navy is a thing. <clears throat> Excuse me. And there are possessions that the United States has in the Pacific. They have footholds and they have the potential to exert power and thwart imperial Japanese plans. And so the, the Japanese... Um, the, uh, they they turn to a brilliant military commander, uh, Isoroku Yamamoto, to plan a a death blow, a crippling strike against the U.S. Navy to annihilate it before it can do anything. And the Japanese have recognized the importance of naval aviation and the the role that it can play in pivoting a campaign. And so their number one objective is to find and destroy the U.S. Navy's aircraft carriers, eliminate its ability to project that power that could intervene and threaten their ambitions in the Pacific. And so on December 7th, 1941, Japan attacks Pearl Harbor. And their objective is to destroy the U.S. Navy carriers that should be there. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, two questions. Yeah. One, so this, you're, this, if the layman's listening along, and, and generally aware that uh, World War II started in 1938, and now it's 1941, and the U.S. is still uninvolved. Yeah, we're, we're uh, at the end of 1941. Um, right. So World War II in Europe started in September 1939. This is two years later. Uh, the British Army has escaped Dunkirk. France has fallen. The RAF has defeated the Luftwaffe in the Battle of Britain. Hitler has charged into Russia <clears throat> and is um, having phenomenal success. And the U.S. has 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 declared itself a non-belligerent, but they are still providing material to France uh, at the start before it fell, and and to Britain continually. 
through these Atlantic convoys and to the Soviet Union um, through different agreements. Uh, as, as soon as Germany attacks the Soviet Union, well, again, the enemy of my enemy is less of my enemy. And so the United States is providing significant amounts of war material, Sherman tanks, fighter planes, medium bombers to the Soviet Union because none of us like Germany right now. Um, has, hey, sorry, really quick. Has Germany, you meant, did Germany take over Spain, Portugal? I mean, we've got the whole the whole mainland of Europe. Uh, no, uh, Germany stayed out of Spain. Um, and and the, I, I, I'm honestly not sure why I'd, I'd have to do some, some more research. But keep in mind that Germany came in to the Spanish Civil War on the side of the eventual winners, uh, you know, Francisco Franco. Um, who, who rose to power following the Spanish Civil War, you know, he received help from Germany. And, and so you, you already had a friendly team down there, I guess. Uh, but no, they didn't get down that far. And then, as you know, Italy came in on the side of Germany as well. There is so much to World War II to cover that I can't get all of it. Uh, but I will mention that Italy didn't waste any time invading everyone around them as well. Uh, Albania, Greece, um, they, they launched the, these campaigns. Meanwhile, much of Eastern Europe is either declaring itself neutral or slowly shifting over to the Axis side. Um, and, and it gets a little bit more complicated when the Axis side fractures when Germany invades the Soviet Union. But you have Yugoslavia being broken up, parts of it being absorbed or having different governments installed. Uh, you have Bulgaria jumping in on the side of the Soviets. And then when Germany attacks the Soviets, they kind of just, well, they don't necessarily join in on the attack on the Soviet Union. Um, but they're still on the Axis side. Uh, Romania okay, so just, is put in a in a similarly bad situation, and and there's coups, there are overthrows. Uh, the king of Romania abdicates, and and another puppet government is kind of installed there. Anyway, so go ahead. Again, for the layman, Axis are bad guys. It's very <laughs> very simplistic. Allies are good guys. Uh, again, very simplistic. However, yes. um, like you said. Some of these people kind of went back and forth. I mean, Russia was on the Axis side until it wasn't. Um, right. I mean, Finland uh, was really on. They they were really friendly to whoever was not invading them at the moment. Um, and and maybe friendly is the wrong word. They they were really just trying to survive. So, you know, to put them in either an Axis or Allied side is probably a, a gross oversimplification. It's also a good time to mention that we have a number of listeners in Germany, and I do wonder what is taught about World War II in Germany. I don't. I think know. that's a topic for another time. Okay. All right. We can continue. <laughs> All right. So, uh, going back to Pearl Harbor, December seventh, the Japanese attack, uh, and and due to some bureaucratic errors and uh, making the Japanese ambassador wait far longer than he should have. The United States does not actually receive the Japanese formal declaration of war until after the attack has happened, which is not the Japanese intent. 
they wanted they their intent was to drop off the declaration of war in Washington um, the morning of December 7th and time the airstrike to occur after that had happened. But the Japanese ambassadors kept waiting for hours. And so that doesn't happen. And and it's a surprise attack and it's devastating to the U.S. Navy. They lose a number of battleships and 2,000 sailors killed. And, and they're caught completely flat-footed, except for the carriers who had been caught in a freak typhoon in the Pacific and delayed for making it back to the port. And this is another critical strategic factor. Uh, as, as the Japanese are reporting on the success of, of their air raid, um, all, all forces in World War II had a tendency to over-exaggerate the successes of their campaigns, whether it was planes shot down, troops killed, battleships sunk, whatever. So the Japanese believe that they have effectively crushed the U.S. naval force in the Pacific. Really quick, before we move away from the Pearl Harbor attack, uh, I I didn't know because, well, I don't know a lot of things, but there are like conspiracy, not like I want to dig into conspiracy theories too much, but yeah, please don't. <laughs> but uh, let's just say some people believe that there was more going on as to why the U.S. was not prepared for for the Pearl Harbor attack. But g- generally, the main mainstream belief, essentially, I guess, is that we just weren't expecting Japan to hit us, right? Like we just thought we weren't going I, why exactly i guess what were we just so so unprepared for a, a japanese attack at, on a military base you'd imagine that we would have been ready for something like that yeah well to those people one i will cite you back to our recent podcast on logical razors um and then tell you to stop believing in conspiracies you idiot <laughs> sorry but come on um, and then second, let's talk about the Doolittle Raid and show you how this type of thing can happen. Uh, so Pearl Harbor goes down. American sentiment immediately becomes inflamed against Japan. Um, you know, grandfather explained it. We went into Europe because the, you know, the Germans were bad. This was the right thing to do. We were going to help our ally. Germany, by the way, declares war on the United States the day after uh, the Pearl Harbor attack. Um, But we went against the Japanese because they were our enemy, uh, the United States enemy. They attacked us and there was rabid hatred towards the Japanese on the American side because they, well, they attacked us. Um, Which led to the... Yeah, and I mean, recent recent history, well... Yeah, among other things. But recent history has shown that if you attack the United States, the United States gets pretty angry. Uh, and so we kick off campaigns in, in Afghanistan and other places, and you you bring a lot of wrath with you. Um, that wrath was, was not easily focused because the Japanese pa- attack at Pearl Harbor had been very effective. And the Japanese then went on to have very effective campaigns throughout the Pacific, uh, conquering uh, Wake Island in particular. Uh, was the U.S. The Japanese attacked it, took everyone prisoner, uh, 
to to be a prisoner of war to the Japanese in World War II was grim. Um, thousands. Book. Yeah, Sorry, I was just going to point them. At, I maybe you've seen the movie Unbroken. Unbro- un- Unbroken. Unbroken. Louis Zamperini. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Zamperini. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, he a, goes. Sorry, go ahead. Well, I was going to say it's. It's. Uh, I can recommend the movie, but what's better is the book, and the book is uh, narrative history. Uh, it's. It's not fiction, but it is. It is follows him on a kind of a narrative, a very story type approach. So it's very approachable for those that generally have a hard time getting into historical uh, reading, and so it's. Really good, a very good read, and it does tell tell you a little bit about, yeah, the Japanese uh, POWs and how nightmarish that situation was. Yeah, I can vouch for it too because I it's hard for me to get into history, you know, books and, um, but this was it was a really good read. It was really interesting, and um, so yeah, it's it's definitely a good book to read. Well, with that plug. Um, <laughs> Yeah, Are so they, the, the, they will no. be soon. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> so so yeah, the um, reports of, of some of these atrocities get back to the United States and continue to inflame American uh, sentiment against the Japanese. Uh, in particular, the story of the Bataan Death March, which. Um, the Japanese went into the Philippines and took the Philippines. Uh, they captured between 60 and 80,000 prisoners of war, both American and Filipino, and basically marched them until they died. Uh, and it was pretty grim. Um, sometimes people just being killed outright, buried alive. Uh, we could spend more podcasts on atrocities committed on both sides, on all sides throughout World War II. But anyway, uh, the Japanese are doing well in the Pacific as far as winning things goes. Um, two things come into play, though. Uh, the first is the Battle of the Coral Sea, which takes place in the Pacific in early 1942. And this is the first real battle where naval aviation is dominant. Uh, And this takes place between May 4th and May 8th in 1942 uh, in the Coral Sea in in the Southern Pacific. The United States has a pair of carriers there, the USS Yorktown, the USS Lexington, with a small force of escorting cruisers and destroyers. The Japanese have a much larger naval fleet. Uh, with more carriers, battleships, and additional cruisers and destroyers. And they're essentially fought to a stalemate. Uh, Both sides lose one carrier. The the United States loses the USS Lexington. And, um, but but it's the first time that the Japanese don't win. And the, the first time that their offensives are able to be blunted. Now, at the same time, I'm sorry, not quite at the same time, uh, a month before, you had an event that I alluded to. Um, the the United States has to do something to not only I mean, public opinion is enraged at the Japanese, but it's also fearful. The the Japanese were able to strike us. Uh, they caught us off guard. They caught us flat footed, and and this is before the days of wide ocean surveillance. So yes, you can get a fleet places. 
Um, and we weren't on a wartime footing, and so they did come in and, and catch us unprepared. Uh, but they're prepared. They're watching the Pacific. They have pickets. They have an unstoppable Navy with way more battleships than we have now because they sank most of ours. And and so how are we going to touch them? We can't. We don't have intercontinental ballistic missiles. We don't have long-range bombers that can make it to Japan from the United States. And so we launched the uh, what is now known as the Doolittle Raid, um, where we took uh, a number of medium bombers that were absolutely not designed to fly off an aircraft carrier, and we flew them off an aircraft carrier. And we sent the USS Hornet, a light carrier, out into the Pacific with a, a very light escort, um, put it out as far as it could go. It actually did get spotted, I believe, by a Japanese picket. And they launched 16 planes, and those planes flew to Japan loaded with fuel and not much else, very light bomb payload. Uh, and they hit targets in Japan, and then they flew past Japan into China to land or to crash land uh, because that's all they could do. And and that, that Doolittle raid was kind of that spark of public hope that maybe the Japanese aren't untouchable. Um, this it's is all also, documented in the Pearl Harbor movie from like 2002 or something. We need to stop bringing pop culture references into this. <laughs> ben Affleck was there, I'm pretty sure. No. No, no, no. Anyway. Um, there were there were some... some there, there's accuracy in that movie, though, to some degree. So. Yeah. Th- this is why we have learning from a layman, so that people can learn rather than... Anyway. Um, yeah. So the, the Doolittle Raid is, is executed, and it's a spectacular success in terms of bolstering American morale. Uh, from a tactical standpoint, it doesn't do a lot of damage. From a strategic standpoint, it's pivotal because the Japanese no longer re- believe in their own invincibility, and they pull massive resources back from their kind of outer pacific forces you know the ones that are conquering islands and assign them to home defense and this is part of what kind of starts to stall the japanese expansion in the pacific okay. uh, the second thing that happens i, I kind of got sidetracked I, I said two things happened and then i mentioned coral sea and forgot the second thing uh the second thing that happens is our our intelligence apparatus breaks the japanese code and suddenly we're able to read Japanese strategic radio traffic. And we're, we're intercepting messages talking about an attack on someplace called AF. And so some clever young intel officer gets the idea of, hey, we think it might be Midway Island. Let's see if we can confirm this. And so the U.S. Navy sends out a spurious bit of message traffic from Midway Island back to the fleet saying, hey, our water station broke. Uh, We're having water supply problems on Midway. Help. And sure enough, shortly after that, they break, they they intercept some Japanese traffic that says the Americans are reporting water trouble at AF. And suddenly it becomes very clear that, yeah, the Japanese are in fact coming from Midway Island uh, on another surprise attack. This seems like a good place. So I think there's still a fair amount of World War II we need to cover. This might be a good place to yeah, cut. Yeah, we're at less than half of it. 
Right, exactly. It might be a good place, so we're midway through the podcast. Boom. Um, and uh, you, you're welcome. Come on. Um, I, I, I liked it. Very good. <laughs> yeah, you got nothing from me there. I didn't think thanks. so. Okay. Um, I thought this could be a two-part podcast, given uh, we've got a lot of really good information so far. I don't want to shortchange the end of World War II, and we're not even that close to the end at the moment. Um, so a lot of things still coming down. Uh, so uh, in that vein, we're going to wrap up here, and uh, then our next episode, which will be released a week or two after this episode drops, will be World War Two Part Two, uh, and uh, so that I think will be a good way to handle this. Um, so, if you're listening to this, uh, and you uh, come grab the second part when it's available. And until then, we will uh, we'll do some more uh, research in World War Two, and uh, we'll be back with you. <laughs>